Hello and welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast looking at how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. I'm Christina Patterson. I'm a writer, broadcaster and coach. And today for the first podcast of 2022, I'm really delighted to welcome Johan Hari, the internationally best-selling author of Chasing the Scream and Lost Connections. Chasing the Scream was made into an Academy Award-nominated film and an eight-part TV series presented by Samuel L. Jackson, and Johan was executive producer of both. He's written for The New York Times, Le Monde and The Guardian. His TED Talks on addiction and depression have been viewed more than 80 million times. In this podcast, he talks about his new book, Stolen Focus, Why We Can't Pay Attention, and tells us how we can get it back. Hello, Johan, and welcome to The Art of Work. It's very odd, odd for us to be talking about work because we used to have desks like almost next to each other. So I it feels know, I know, I know. Well, it's fantastic to be uh, looking at your face on Zoom and a lot less lovely to be looking at my face on Zoom or Lancaster <laughs> or whatever it is. But uh, So first of all, congratulations on your absolutely brilliant book, Stolen Focus. Um, it kind of made me very self-conscious about my complicated relationship with my phone because even though it's a gripping book obviously I also felt the standard kind of twitch and then I thought oh my god I really must fight it while I'm reading this book and um and it made me realize the um the mix that on top of the usual sense of I haven't achieved enough every day and I haven't my focus has been hopeless is a sense of guilt and failure every day about the role that technology plays in our lives, or rather my addiction to technology. Can you say a bit about that mix of emotions and what you think that's doing to us? Yeah, it's such an interesting way of putting it, because for a really long time, I felt my own attention getting worse. I noticed that loads of the people I knew felt their attention was getting worse. Um, and I would, like almost everyone I knew, in fact, like everyone I knew, I would blame myself, right? I would say oh you're being lazy you're being weak you, your willpower isn't strong enough pull yourself together I was constantly reproaching myself and then the other thing I would do is I would tell myself well this is just part of the human condition isn't it you know you can read letters from monks almost a thousand years ago where one of them writes to the other and goes oh, my attention ain't what it used to be essentially um and then I w it was really looking at the young people in my life and thinking you know what this does feel so different to, to 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 even the not so long ago that we were that age, I thought, you know, I really need to look into this. So I ended up going on a really big journey all over the world, obviously, before the plague struck and, and interviewing over 200 of the leading experts in the world about um, what boosts attention, what damages attention. And I learned that there's there's actually scientific evidence for 12 different factors that can boost or hinder attention. And many of those factors have been just the, the factors that can degenerate your can cause your attention to degenerate have been massively rising in recent years. Um, one of the things that surprised me actually is that tech is not the biggest of those factors, mm. and that actually our relationship with our technology um, this is one of the twelve that is significantly more complicated and in some ways more solvable than I thought at the start. Um, but but the 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 key thing I suppose that really struck me is that we need to get out of this psychology of blaming ourselves. This is happening to all of us. Mm. Your attention didn't collapse. Your attention was stolen from you. And what we need to do is take on the forces that have stolen our attention and, and get it back, 
right? It's, it's a very different adjustment. Exactly what you're saying, that, that way that you feel completely internalizing it. Oh, it's just me. I've failed. Um, it was really striking to me to go and interview some of the leading experts in the world on attention and then just say, look, we, this is just not true. I mean, Professor Joel Nigg, for example, who's one of the leading experts on children's attention problems in the world, who I interviewed in Portland, in Oregon, said to me that we need to ask if we're living in what he called an attentional pathogenic environment, an environment in which all forms of deep focus are getting harder and harder. It's more like running up a down escalator with each year that passes because of these pervasive social forces that are acting upon us, of which tech is only one. And actually, it's one particular component in tech that's particularly responsible, one that we can reform. So I think you're right. We've got to, it, it, we have to make a dramatic change in, our, in the way we think about what's actually happening here. It is not primarily individual failure. Very interesting. And so... The, I think the interview that made me most angry was the one with Nir Eyal, author of Indistractable, who essentially <laughs> says it's all a matter of willpower, even though he literally wrote a book for tech designers um, telling them how to get people hooked uh, on their apps and products. Did you get angry with him? And were you surprised by any of the things he said? Yes and yes. <laughs> so, um I guess I would pull back and explain to people. Um, so I think what's happening to us is that basically all day someone is pouring itching powder over us. Mm. And then that person is leaning forward to us and saying, do you know what? Um, you might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. Exactly. Right. And near, near has many good qualities. I want to stress that. And, and I would urge people because I suspect he'll think that my summary of his views is unfair because he seems to say that about everyone who ever summarizes his views. So I would recommend listening to the audio, which I've put on stolenfocusbook.com of our full conversation so you can see the full context. But so this is my summary of it. Um, so Nir wrote a book uh, called Indistractable, which is full of personal advice for how to improve your attention, uh, much of which is very helpful. And I'm strongly in favor of all of us individually taking steps to deal with these problems. And I take many of these steps themselves. In, in my book, obviously, I go through dozens of things we can do as individuals. It is essential that we take these individual steps. But it was a very clarifying conversation with Nir, and, and in that sense, very helpful. And to be fair to him, he is in favor of some things that are not purely individual changes, but they seem to me very minor. Mm. Uh, but I realized, you know, the analogy he used, I think, is really interesting. He came to this view that um, you know, we can all just overcome these things by willpower. As he puts it, your phone has a button that will cut, cut you know, a do not disturb button. As he put it to, I hope you don't mind me swearing on your podcast. Yeah. He said, just push the fucking button, mm. right? He said that to me. Um, he said, why is that the fault of the tech company? You should push the fucking button. And Nir came to this way of thinking about problems. When he was a, a boy and a young man, he was obese, which is very surprising when you, when I heard him say that, because he's buff now, you know. Um, and he said to me that this was very formative for him, that he said at first he blamed, you know, the environment, but then he sort of realized, oh, I'm, I'm eating my feelings. Uh, I need to overcome this. And he overcame his weight problems by exercising and dieting, or rather by changing what he ate and by, by um, exercising much more. He took up wrestling. 
And a funny way, that that analogy that he used, and he essentially just says, well, we can do the same with the problems relating to attention. And it was very striking to me, that analogy, because if we look at, if we think about obesity, and I then discussed this with many experts on attention who helped me to frame this, you think about obesity, if you look at a picture of a beach in 1970 in Britain or pretty much anywhere in the Western world, everyone is what we would call slim or buff. Literally everyone. It's Mm. very striking. Um, and at first, when you look at that, you think, well, wh- where was everyone else? And then you realize, oh, no, this is what everyone looked like mm-hmm. in 1970, not so long ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as we all know, since then, the average American has put on 22 pounds. There's been an explosion of obesity across the Western world. What happened is not that there was suddenly a collective failure of willpower everywhere, right? That's not what happened. What happened is there were key changes in the way we live. Obviously, the entire food supply system changed from fresh and nutritious food to mostly processed food. And the uh, the cities we live in are almost, for many people, impossible to walk or bike around, right? So we can see with obesity, we created what was called an obesogenic environment, right? Uh, an environment in which it's very hard to not become overweight. And I sort of, and, and we know this, also we know 19 out of every 20 people who lose weight on a diet um regain that weight within one to three years Mm. and so i was thinking talking to near well he's he's obviously one of the 20 for whom the diet worked right which is great and all credit to him but i realized the more i looked at the evidence that we are living in the equivalent of an obesogenic environment when Mm. it comes to our attention Mm. we are living in an environment that invades our attention all the time and it was galling to hear it from near because near's second book is called indistractable but as you say he wrote a book prior to that called Hooked, how to design, I'm trying to remember the subtitle, I'm not getting the exact words right, but how to design habit-forming products, mm. I think is the subtitle, mm. which is advice for tech designers. I mean, when you read it as an ordinary non-tech person, it's like the moment in a in a Batman film where the villain at the end gets caught and he reveals how he did it all along. Mm. You know, it, it's, it's advice for tech designers um, telling them how to design habit-forming products. He, he wrote a blog post near entitled want to hook your users drive them crazy mm. and i wanted to tease out with him that the, the the kind of um disjunction between his first book and his second book in his first book he describes these very powerful technological forces which have been hugely influential the ceo of microsoft held up his book and said that um everyone should read it it's been massively influential in silicon valley And then in the second book, he offers these very, mostly these very puny personal interventions. Picture yourself as like a leaf on a river. And it's like, well, you know, you've said you want to drive us crazy. And then you're telling us to picture us like a leaf on a river. There's a real disjunction there, uh, which is not to say there aren't valuable things in what he recommends. There are. And it's not to say that he does. He's not in favor of some forms of regulation. He is. But talking to Nia really helped me to think about. A, a wider phenomenon, which is called, uh, which was um, a phrase that was first coined by Lauren Ballant, the French, uh, hist- wonderful, sorry, American historian writing about France. Um, it's called cruel optimism. Yeah, I was going to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 Johan, you probably know this, and but and certainly anybody who listens to this podcast or knows me knows that I get very exercised about optimism I don't unfortunately get very exercised about exercise it would be very nice (laughs) (laughs) I do get very exercised about optimism and and you look we're living in a country 
in you know under an optimist during a pandemic if anyone wants to see what cruel optimism looks like mm. you know this is it but uh, so yes yeah, so so tell us more about cruel optimism yeah that's so interesting i hadn't thought of boris johnson in relation to the pandemic and cruel optimism that's so interesting so just think about that cruel optimism is where you take something with a really big social cause obesity addiction depression attention problems whatever it might be and you say to people in a very upbeat way well i've got a solution for you um all you need to do is do this let's think about attention problems all you need to do is meditate for 10 minutes a day you're going to be it's going to be great use this little one meditation app your attention is going to come back it's going to be like magic um and of course, it sounds like optimism. I've got a solution for you, but it's cruel because it will almost certainly fail, which is not saying meditation isn't valuable, it is. Um, it will almost certainly fail because it's so um, so inadequate to the size of the problem, right? And the reason why it's cruel is not just because it fails, but because when it fails, you will blame yourself, mm. right? You will think, well, I did the thing you're meant to do, and look, I still can't pay attention or I'm still overweight or whatever it might be. There must be something wrong with me. I just wasn't strong enough to do the thing you're meant to do. Um, now, the alternative to cruel optimism is not pessimism. It's authentic optimism, mm. which is where we actually explore the genuine scale of the problem. Mm. And we build solutions that are big enough to deal with the problem. Um, so can I give you a specific, I think I can sound a bit woolly and abstract. Can I give you a specific mm. example, two levels at which we need to tackle this. So one of the people I interviewed uh, who told me something that was both something I knew and something that most horrified me was a man named Professor Earl Miller, one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. Uh, he's at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, and I'm a very, very well-respected neuroscientist. He said to me, look, more than anything else about the human brain, you need to understand one thing. You can only think about one thing at a time. That's it, mm. consciousness, right? But what we've done is we, we've created an enormous mythology. The average teenager now believes they can follow seven forms of media at the same time. So when Professor Miller's colleagues get people into labs and get them to think they're doing lots of things at a time, they, they study them. And what they discover is, in fact, you're not doing lots of things at a time. You're juggling. You're juggling between many different tasks. And uh, your consciousness sort of papers over it to create a seamless effect. But this comes with a significant cost. And the cost is that it profoundly diminishes your ability to think and pay attention. There's loads of studies of this. There's a, a really striking one that was done by Carnegie Mellon University, their human computer interaction lab. Uh, they got 138 students and they split them into two groups and they got both groups to do the same exam. The first group was told, do the exam in normal exam conditions. And the second group was told, um, you can have your phone on and you can send and receive text messages if you want. Now, you'd think the second group would do better because they could have cheated, right? In fact, the second group on average did 20% worse because being interrupted ruins your ability to focus and pay attention. In fact, Professor Michael Posner at the University of Oregon found if you're interrupted by something like a text message, it takes on average 23 minutes to get back to the level of focus you had before the interruption. But most of us never get 23 minutes clear. So we're constantly operating at this permanently diminished level of ability. Um, as Professor Miller put it to me, we're living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation mm. as a result of this. Now, like with all of the 12 factors that I talk about in Style and Focus, there's two levels at which we've got to deal with this. The first level is personal. And Nir's not wrong about that, right? He's right. There are lots of things we, in fact, I would go much further than he does in terms of personal interventions, but I'll just give one example. 
you can't see this, Christina, from the angle of my camera, but in the corner over there, I've got something called a K-safe. Oh, I was fascinated by that. I need to get one. You must get one. It's I, Honestly, I don't think I would have finished my book if I hadn't. I'm amazed that you finished your brilliant memoir without a K-safe. So <laughs> the way it works is you, it's plastic safe. You take the lid off. The, um, you put your phone in. You put the lid on and you turn the dial at the top to lock your phone away for anything between five minutes and a week. By the way, I hope the company that makes K-safe starts paying me commission. <laughs> on every podcast. Um, so I do that four hours a day, right? Just to get my head clear. But it's really important, and this is true of so many of the things that I write about, that has massively helped me, that will help many people. And I'm absolutely conscious that there will be many people listening for whom me saying, I put my phone away for four hours a day will be like, it would be as if I walked up to a homeless person in the street and said, mate, do you know what would make you feel much better if you went into the Ritz over there and you had a really nice steak? Have you considered that? It, it would be maddening because we currently live in a gap between what we want to do to restore our attention and what in the current social configuration we can do, which is why we have to have a second layer of this, which is dealing with the factors that are doing this to us. And I'll just give a super quick, very unconscious, I'm giving a long answer here, a very quick uh, example of one of the many things we could do to do that. In France in 2018, they had a really big crisis of what they called le burnout, which I don't think I need to translate. And And under pressure from trade unions, the French government set up a commission led by Bruno Metling, who is the head of Orange, one of their biggest telecom companies. Um, And they said to him, look, just figure out what we can do about this. And he discovered that 35% of French workers felt they could never stop checking their email or turn off their phone because their boss could message them at any time of the day or night. And then, you know, they'd be in trouble if they didn't answer. Um, and this was, you know, horrendous for them. And I, I remember when I read that, thinking, God, when we were kids, the only people who were on call were the prime minister mm. and doctors. Even doctors weren't on call all the time, right? Mm. Now, 35% of the economy is on call all the time. Mm. So to deal with this, Metling proposed and the French government introduced into law a very simple reform. It's called the right to disconnect. It just says two things. You have a le- Every worker has a legal right to have their work hours defined in a contract. And every worker has the right to not have to check their email or answer their phone outside those work hours. So I went to Paris to um, look into this uh, in those days when we could go to Paris. Halcyon <laughs> days. Um, and, you know, just just before um, just before I was there, Rent-A-Kill had been fined 70,000 euros for trying to get a worker to answer his email an hour after he'd left work. Oh. Right? Now, you can see how that that. That to me exposes the flaw in Nears push the fucking button, right? Yeah. Because that 35% of the people, they can't push the fucking button. Sorry to keep using the word fucking there, which I've done again, I apologize. The, 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 those people can't push the button mm. because well, they'll lose their job if they don't if exactly. push that button, right? So we got, I can give people all the sweet self-help lectures in the world about, you know, you want to switch tasks less, you want to sleep more. If we don't have structural changes to the way we live, mm-hmm. most people will not be able to do that. But those structural changes are entirely achievable, right? We're all the beneficiaries of previous generations who fought for structural changes. Does that ring true to you, Christina? Well, um, there's so much I want to say in response to that, not least that I had a, a 600-page book to review for the Sunday Times um, last week, and I, I normally don't review books that are longer than 300 pages, but I, you would love it, actually. It's And it's not unlike the kind of... Um, books you do except that it, she did it over nine years this book mm. and it's um it's a 
she and it's a really in-depth New York Times reporter um a sort of in-depth portrayal of of poverty in, in in New York's fantastic anyway so I was trying to read and obviously like everybody else and I you know like you partly read for a living um my attention has been shot to pieces um but at one point I thought right they're going to put down my phone for an hour and I went into another room and didn't go near it and then when I came back I'd been asked to go on on something I really wanted to go on and of course by the time I responded it had gone so that's the other that's the other problem with uh you know if you are in in the kind if you are a, a sort of essentially a gig worker in somewhere fast moving like journalism the opportunities come and they go and if you don't respond that minute they go so there is there is also that but um but that's that's yeah, you know that's a kind of most people aren't in that situation, but then most people, as you say, are in a situation where they have to respond pretty quickly to an employer in one form or another, I suppose. That's so interesting. I'm just thinking about what you're saying, Christina, because I think that 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 that's absolutely true. And there's we've created this expectation of immediate responses. Of course, you know, if you work in news, that that, that and that's there's always going to be an inherent element of look, the news happens quickly and you have to respond quickly. But I think this is another thing that's happening because there's anyway, something I thought you were going to say, uh, which is not what you said, which is interesting. Um, we might want to think about, which is, so I remember at the start of the pandemic, um, so many people I knew saying, oh, well, this is the time I can read that 600 page book. You know, people were cracking out Anna Karenina, which I know is more than 600 pages, <laughs> you know, and, and literally nobody I know did that apart from my friend Chris who listened to everything as audiobooks while walking around with his baby for like his newborn baby for like you know the whole day to try to stop the baby crying um and, and I was thinking a lot about this um obviously I'd written 90% of the book before Covid happened but it was a funny thing that thank god because I as you know my method mm. is to travel and interview mm. people so I would have been completely beached if I couldn't do that but it, but it was really interesting because I realized that one of the chapters for the book had really primed me to understand why nobody I knew could focus during COVID. Because on the one hand, the world did slow down. We know speed ruins attention. So it seems like, oh, the world slowed down. It was the first time in our lifetimes the world had consciously slowed down, obviously in response to a dreadful tragedy. And there's another factor that has, even though that, that slowing down would boost people's attention if it was the sole factor going on, there's another factor that was playing out. And this person I kept thinking about all through this, one of the, I think probably the single most remarkable person I met working on the book, an amazing woman called Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. Mm, California, the Surgeon General of California. She's, I mean, you would love her, Christina. I, I thought she sounded absolutely phenomenal. She's an amazing person. I can talk about her her story, but just to go to the, the core of the bit that I think speaks most directly to COVID, I think all her work does, but and I've got a chapter about her, but... Um, she said to me, I can remember it so clearly, it was it was not long before the pandemic started now, I think of it, although I'd never thought of that before. We didn't, obviously didn't know the pandemic was about to start. Um, she said to me, look, imagine you're attacked by a bear. Um, in the weeks and months that follow, something will happen to your attention. Your attention will flip. Completely, un whether you want it to or not, your attention will flip to scanning the horizon for risks and dangers. That's just part of being human if you if you've been subject to a sudden threat out of the blue you'll be looking for other threats out of the blue and it will take time for your attention to repair 
it's not that you're not paying attention. It's that your your attention flips from being able to focus on something like reading a book to, to, to just the attention is paid to scanning for predators and threats. Okay, now imagine you were attacked by a bear again. You would very likely flip into a state called hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is where you cannot focus on the thing directly in front of you. You're just scanning the horizon for risk and danger. Um, I think... And, and we know this fits with a much wider body of evidence about how stress severely damages attention because it partly there's many things going on, but partly because it causes vigilance. Um, I think what's happened under COVID is something like that, particularly mm. now with Omicron. Definitely. It's like the bear came back a third exactly. time. Exactly. Right? exactly. Like, so I think no one should be criticizing or judging themselves for not being able to read Anna Karenina in a plague. Mm. Right. And it was really interesting. I remember there's this Australian wonderful Australian child psychiatrist called Dr. John Giardini, who I interviewed in Adelaide, who said to me, he was talking about children's, uh, children who've been through trauma in particular, but I think it has wider application. He said to me, you know, paying attention in a deep way, like reading a book is a great tactic if you are safe, mm. right? You'll grow, you're mentally developed. It's a fool's tactic if you're in danger. Exactly. You'd be an idiot to sit you know, you'd be a fool to sit at the Battle of the Somme reading a novel. You're not going to last very long, right? Um, so so deep focus is something we can provide when we are safe. I've definitely been a kind of, not exactly full-time, and not far off full-time unpaid epidemiologist for the last two years. And it's tiring, <laughs> it's tiring work. <laughs> and uh, and um, it almost it almost is like not stepping on the cracks in the paving stones in that if you read every new bit of information that comes in about whatever the latest variant is then somehow or other I don't know what I think that will do um I suppose you think that knowledge is some kind of weapon but when the when the information you get is not very cheering then that just feeds the hypervigilance in a way interesting because that makes me think I hadn't thought about it that way I'm just thinking about what you're saying because I think that was true. That I think that's def- obviously true. Of the pandemic, so obviously true. Of the pandemic that doesn't, you know, we, we barely need to discuss it more. But I think about that in relation to earlier. So, as you know, for the book, I spent three months completely off the internet mm. in a place called Provincetown in Cape Cod, and um, and one of the things, so I, <laughs> I, I I did it not, you know, at the time I, I wasn't thinking, oh, this will be some experiment for a book. I was just like. I am losing my ability to read and think, and these things are so precious to me, as they are to everyone, that I I I I I went to Provincetown, which is a little kind of gay resort town. It's it's a kind of place where more than one person earns a full-time living dressing as Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid, and singing songs about kind of it's a, a great place. I recommend it to everyone, I commend it to everyone listening. But um, but one of the things that really changed me there was my news consumption. So I was there when you remember the dreadful? I mean, many things happened. It was the it was the summer when of the kind of uh, it was the height of Trumpism. It was twenty eighteen, so it was the height of when Trump did that horrific press conference with Putin. And mm. um, anyway, I was there when th- there was that massacre in the newspaper in in the United States. I mean, we've been so numb to massacres now, but the the that's particularly close to our hearts. Of course, I pictured the Independent where we worked. You know, um, so a, a gunman went in and massacred people in a newspaper in I think Maryland, and. All I knew of that was every day I would go and read, I would buy the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal from the one shop that sold newspapers in mm. Provincetown. 
And, and I didn't hear what happened in the news again until mm. the next day. And mm. occasionally people would tell me, but I didn't know. And I realized, a, a funny thing is I realized what a profoundly modern and necessary invention the printed newspaper, the mm. thing this gunman attacked was, right? Mm. Actually, what a great thing to just get your news once a day. Mm. You absorb it. It took me half an hour to read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, sometimes a bit longer. Um, and then, but this kind of constant drip feed of, oh my God, the West Antarctic ice sheet is going to collapse. Mm. Oh my God, Donald Trump is now the favorite to be reelected. Oh my God, Omicron has done this in Israel. Oh my, and you just, this reeling mm. is deeply um even if you set aside the fact that we're also getting this news through mediums like social media which are maximally designed to anger us and we can mm. talk about that. even if you even if that wasn't the case this is a um terrible way to live mm. it's profoundly anxiety provoking causes stress it, it triggers vigilance and and again I keep thinking about saying that a, a wonderful man named Dr. James Williams, uh, who I would argue is the leading philosopher of attention in the world. He's a um, former Google engineer who quit in horror at what they were doing. Um, I remember James saying to me when I interviewed him in Moscow, um, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days. Mm. So of course it's taking us time to get a handle on how these things should work what we want them to be, what we don't want them to be. And I think we can see now there are lots of aspects. Obviously, there's a huge amount of, number of aspects of the internet that are incredible. There's some aspects of how it's currently working that are not good for us. And we can reform these things to make it work better for us. Because at the moment, it doesn't work for us. It works for you know, Mark Zuckerberg and a handful of other people. So uh, there's so much I want to say in response to that. But one is really to go back to the fact that Zuckerberg I mean, I would call them all cruel optimists, really, these Silicon Valley geeks in their garages thinking that you can both become a billionaire and change the world for the better. And they absolutely didn't change the world for the better. And one of the, as we now know, the um, dark forces that have been created, both in terms of the rise of populism, Donald Trump, Brexit, Putin's interference in elections, the demise of democracy or rather the um, weakening of democracy, the rise of anti-vaxxers. I mean, this is dark, dark stuff. And But some of it is also cruel optimism. Brexit, for example, was presented as, mm. you know, bring take back control, like an optimistic message for which so far there seem to have been literally zero benefits. So all of this, I think for many of us, can create something that provokes a mix of sort of impotent rage and a kind of political despair which is um can be quite existential even if and obviously you've written a book about depression and we're not talking actual depression but we are talking certainly in my case something quite deep uh in terms of I don't know what to do about this stuff and and one of the things when you are a journalist you have a sense right or wrong particularly if you're a columnist, as we both were, both writing two columns a week, you have a, a, a sort of tiny sense that you can do something. You can rage against things. You can argue, you know, probably quite superficially, but also quite uh, passionately about, you know, whatever some latest thing is, a policy issue or whatever. And you can feel as if you're doing something. And obviously, your books are doing something because they are a mix of deep investigation and activism, actually. Um, and each of them in their own way has sort of takes an issue, 
from a personal, from a strongly felt personal impetus, investigates it thoroughly, places it in a, a global and environmental context, suggests some big picture and small picture uh, things that could change and and almost a movement actually each one in a way leads to a movement so that is from a personal and selfish point of view alone quite an effective thing to do with your political despair Um, quite putting aside the good that is done and obviously there is a lot of good done but what most people can't do that so Johan what what advice would you give to those of us who feel really quite uh, you know, we look at what's happening in terms of populism and, I mean, thank God, you know, Boris Johnson seems to be in a bit of trouble at the moment, but that doesn't mean that some utopian social democracy is around the corner, unfortunately. How how do we deal with this, even just at an emotional level? Never mind, you know, how do we live our lives in order to counter it? So when I, when I feel that feeling that you're having, and I often feel it, of, oh my God, God, we're up against such powerful forces. When when I feel that feeling of despair that you're experiencing, and I, and I do feel it sometimes, um, it would be a very odd person who in the last, who went lived through the last five years who didn't have moments of despair and disorientation. And when I think about what we need to do now, let's say on this subject, attention, because I actually think we have to solve the attention crisis before we solve any other mm. crisis. If you can't so pay attention, you can't achieve any goals. Mm. Um, I think a lot about my grandmothers and I remember you and I, as you know, I loved my grandmothers and mm. I remember we had a very moving conversation after my, one of my grandmothers died. Mm. Um, and you were very kind to me about it. So, and I preface this by saying, I appreciate it's extremely irritating as a man for me to say what I'm about to say, but I think about my grandmothers. So I'm 42. My grandmothers were 42 in 1963 one of them was a working class Scottish woman living in a tenement in, in Scotland. And the other was what would have been called a peasant woman living in a wooden farm on the side of a mountain in Switzerland. Um, both of them had left school when they were 13, even though the men in their families stayed on longer because no one gave a shit about girls learning anything. Um, in 1963, neither of them were allowed to have bank accounts because they were married women in their own name. It was legal for their husbands to rape them. In practice, it was legal for their husbands to beat the shit out of them because the police would never intervene in domestic violence. My Swiss grandmother wasn't even allowed to vote, right? So I think about my grandmother's lives then. And then I think about my niece's life. My niece is 17. My, my Swiss grandmother, who sadly my niece never knew, my, my niece never met. I mean, I met when she was a baby, but never really knew her. Um, my niece, <laughs> it's funny, both my grandmother and my niece love to draw. And when my grandmother did it, people said, shut up, stop doing that, get into the kitchen, what are you wasting your time for? With my niece, we say, oh, you should go to art school, this is amazing. Of course, there is still a huge way to go in achieving equality and liberation for women. But the tra- the difference between my grandmother's lives and my niece's lives are stunning, right? And I think about, so when people say to me, as entirely rightly and understandably, they say, look, you want to take on these big forces. Let's think about one of the 12 causes in the book. You want to take on big tech and how it currently works. But these people are so powerful. And I I say to them, they are, and it's a big fight. They are not 100th as powerful as men were in 1963, when my grandmothers were my age. Mm. In 1963, men controlled every country, 
almost every company. They controlled every police force, every army. Men controlled literally every institution of power in every country in the entire world and had done since those institutions were created with the exception of of a few hereditary queens along the way, right? And it would have been very easy for the generation of women of my grandmother to say, oh, we're never going to win this. Are you crazy? It's been like this forever. They didn't do that. They started where they stood. They banded together. They said, we're not going to take this shit anymore. Some sympathetic men joined them and they fought and they fought and they're still fighting. My God is, you know, much better than I do. Um, And so to me, this is how all progressive change happens. And all power always wants us to feel like we can't do anything to challenge Mm. them, right? Or they, they, there is a constant effort by power, very effective, to get us to think anything that's wrong in the world is a fault of our individual failing, not them fucking us over, yeah. right? Of course, every floor is them fucking us over. It's more complicated than that. But so I am optimistic in the medium to long term because we're just all the beneficiaries of these changes, you know? Um, I mean, if you think about... Yeah, I mean, I could talk for a long time about this. So absolutely. And because there are very practical things we can do, because very often we'll tell people, we'll think, oh, the problem is just the existence of a smartphone. And that's completely disempowering because you think, well, we're not going to all become the Amish. We're not, or we can't even, how many people will even be able to do what I did in Provincetown and be without a phone for three months? Basically no one. Um, But when you realize it's not the existence of the technology, or rather the existence of the technology in and of itself would have had some negative effect on our attention. But actually, it's key aspects of the current business model that are causing exactly, such damage. Yeah, yeah. And I can talk more about that. But does that ring true to you, Christina? We've, in our friendship, we've often had a pessimism, optimism, seesaw. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just say that I think you're more optimistic than I am. But, but you know, one needs, one needs, I mean, change doesn't happen without it. I, I'm a, well, you know, I'm constantly saying this, but um, I can't remember what your phrase of um, for optimism was, but the, the sort of positive form authentic optimism I mean I, I call it energetic realism I'm a big fan of energy mm-hmm. um energy to change you know taking a clear idea I'm going to kind of pull this back now to more mm. personal and individual level because this mm. podcast is focusing on on individuals work and although I would also very much like it to change society and get rid of Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> um, <laughs> in the remaining time um, we probably can't do that. So I want you to ask more. <laughs> I can't believe that you met Mihaly Chikshent Mihaly, um, and the, the guy who came up with the concept of flow. So tell us how we can increase the amount of flow in our own working lives, and what what you do, and what we can do. So I probably, I'm pretty sure I did the last interview that he ever did, by the way. Mm. And it took me literally two weeks to learn how to yeah, say I know. this. I, I meant to look up because you, you wrote down how to pronounce it. Tell me how it is, what it is. So, uh, someone taught me by giving me, so it's cheek. Yeah. They did a little mime for me. Cheek sent me high E. Cheek ah, sent me high. Very good. <laughs> Although when I said it to him, he was like, yeah, that's sort of it. <laughs> so like the... Uh, but, um, so Mahali Cheek sent me Mahali Cheek sent me high is and was a completely extraordinary man who who um, pioneered many key aspects of psychology, but just first coined the phrase flow states. So everyone listening will have experienced a flow state. A flow state is when you're doing something and you so get into it that time seems to fall away, your ego seems to fall away, and your attention just flows 
effortlessly into it, right? Uh, one rock climber said to Mihaly, it's like, it's the mo- a flow state is when you feel like you are the rock you're climbing. Um, and so Mihaly spent 50 years, um, he sadly died shortly after I interviewed him. He spent 50 no years- No correlation, <laughs> folks. <laughs> I did. I mean, I, I, I hope I'm not arrested at the end of this interview. So, um, the all of my other interviewees remain alive at this point, to my knowledge. Um, he, um, he 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 spent 50 years studying flow states in all sorts of different ways. He was such a wise, good, humane man. I mean, just a really one of the best people I've ever met. And so, obviously, I talked to him a lot of it. I read a huge amount of his research, and I think. The reason why flow is so important for thinking about attention is because flow is both the deepest form of attention we can give and it's a form of attention which appears to be effortless. It's not like studying for an exam where you're like, oh God, I've got to memorize this and that and that. And, oh, when did this happen? It's not like that. We'll all know that when flow comes, so obviously it's really important. That this is a, a, a deep capacity for attention we all have within us. So what I want to know is how do we drill down to get that? And I discussed this with him a lot and there were, I'm necessarily oversimplifying, but what I took three key lessons from, for this, for for our purposes. The first is you have to choose one goal. If you're trying to do many things, you will never get into flow and distraction kills flow. Mm. So he was very clear about that. The evidence on that is very clear. You have to do one thing. I want to climb this rock. I want to read this book. I want to, you know, run up this beach, whatever it might be. You've got to do that one thing. You've got to do one thing and you've got to choose it in advance. You've got to be conscious as well. Mm. Secondly, um, you, you, um, you need to choose a goal that is meaningful to you. So if, if the goal is, and this is one reason why so few, many people can't get into flow if, with some aspects of their work. If what you're doing is not meaningful to you, you won't flow into it. So, you know, you could make me paint a canvas I'll I'll never get into flow. It would make me play a guitar. It'd sound like a cat was being murdered. If I tried to climb a rock, you know, well, I would just fall off the rock and die. <laughs> There'd be no flow state there. The, the flow would be off my blood onto the floor. But the, um, it's got to be a goal that is meaningful to you. And it hugely helps if what you do is at the edge of your abilities. Mm. So if you're a rock climber, uh, a medium talent rock climber, you don't want to clamber over a garden wall. You're not going to get into flow doing that. Equally, you don't want to suddenly try to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. You're going to get overwhelmed. What you want to do is climb a rock that's slightly higher and harder than the last mm. one you did. So when things are at the edge of your abilities, that's when we get it. That's when we maximize our chances mm. of getting flow. One writer said, life begins at the edge of your comfort zone. Mm. And I think flow begins at mm. the edge of your comfort zone. And how, so, sorry, carry on. Yeah, please, absolutely. I was going to say, so how often would you say you achieve flow in your work life? Oh, that's an interesting question. I've got a bit of a weakness for books about how to write and writing. I don't know if you can see, but like there's like two shelves full of them just behind me. Um, and weirdly, <laughs> almost all the advice in them does not apply. It is not my method. So um, I, they always say, writing books so often say you have to have a routine where you go to your desk at a certain time and you just sit there, even if it doesn't come. That, that, I don't do that. Mm. So um, I, they always say you can't just write when you feel like it. And I do just write when I feel like it. Mm. I think though, because I'm such a neurotic person, if I got to the end of a week and I hadn't written anything, I would just be so ashamed of myself that I, I'm so propelled by guilt and shame and, and, <laughs> and the need to be, you know, uh, 
I cope with anxiety by working. So in a way, I don't need the routine because I've got an inner thermostat yeah, set. Yes, to, exactly. Are you not working at any given moment? Yes. Um, so for me, flow comes in a few different ways. So most often flow comes either in writing or in talking to people. So so much of my method is is learning things from people, mm. right? Sitting with them, learning things. Um, and so for me, like I've just been in Las Vegas for a lot of the pandemic because I'm writing a book about a series of crimes that have happened in Las Vegas. And uh, I think about some of the people I've got to know there who I just deeply love. And I, I got so much flow on my last trip. There's moments when... I've been investigating these crimes for 10 years. Um, And there's sometimes there's a moment when you realize what happened, something makes sense. Mm. You're like, oh, like I'm not meant to talk about this, but I tracked down a detective who'd worked on a much earlier case that I think is related to these crimes. And I I, I sat with him for four hours and there were moments there. I was like, oh, wait, that's what that means. And that, so for me, flow will either come from the actual process of writing. Sometimes it comes from speaking and public speaking mm. and talking. I'm a bit of a ham. I like that. I really regret that I'm not going to be able to do much face-to-face mm. stuff with the audiences during for the current book for obvious reasons. Um, but for me, it's 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 usually because I think with us, with with people like us who who write, we. You're, you're sort of inherently at the edge of your comfort zone because you're sort mm. of constantly trying to find out, well, okay, well, what well, what, what causes our attention problems? What's going on here? You, there's always an, an element of an edge. For me, because I'm not an expert on anything, um, so I guess flow for me comes in just curiosity yes. and discovery and be like, oh, the joy of something that didn't quite make sense, making sense to you. There's no pleasure yes. like it. Yes, very interesting. And you mentioned, you kind of hint at your workaholism there um and you've written in the past about how you have or again in the past minimized your sleep sort of cut it to four hours a night took stimulants and uh anti-narcolepsy drugs all the things you do did essentially to increase your productivity and we are in a culture which is kind of worships productivity but then we are but then sort of people who are either intensely aware of how short life is, and that is probably most of us now, um, <laughs> and or who are ambitious in whatever ways, we're never going to be sitting around doing mindfulness and thinking, oh, you know, I can just, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you just, those who kind of, people who aim at, um, people who are perceived as high achievers, even if you never ever perceive yourself that way, generally are pretty driven and work pretty hard. But you argue against the culture of um, constant economic growth and constant focus on productivity and also constant consumption of information in um, in stolen focus. So where are you now in terms of what, you know, is traditionally called work-life balance? Just funny because um, <laughs> I, just, I was going to say, you and I are never going to be monk-like, you know, <laughs> But I remembered that when we worked together at The Independent, I interviewed the Dalai Lama <laughs> and he called me fat and was a complete bitch. So the, um, <laughs> I remember this. It was so I do horrible. now, I do now. So actually, we are more monk-like than we think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, 
No, it's so interesting because um, <laughs> there's so many things about you just asked because it's funny, sometimes my books are put in the self-help section of bookshops, which doesn't bother me, but um, I always try to say to people, I don't write self-help for the simple reason. So the structure of self-help is always, dear reader, I had this problem mm-hmm. and I solved it in the following That's five ways. Yes. And now you, dear reader, can do the same. It's okay. always implicit cruel optimism, mm. uh, which is not to say it doesn't often contain useful advice. Usually mm. it does. Very often it does. Um, and it would be ludicrous. So I can tell you the scientific evidence I learned, which is very clear. I went to a company in New Zealand where they moved to a four-day week for the same pay, and they achieved more in four days than they did in five. I, um, you know, I learned all about how our culture of overwork is devastating, um, I interviewed a, a, a great guy at Stanford University, Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer, said to me, if you want to understand why overwork is such a disaster for your attention and your productivity, just ask any sports fan, do you want your team to walk onto the pitch completely exhausted? No. Right. I can tell you all that. But do I, do I, yeah, do I, exactly. you know, of course. So, and, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. In my case, you know, as you know, and you know some of my family, you know, I grew up in a family where there were a lot of uh, problems with addiction and various other problems. And it was quite a traumatic uh, early life. And I dealt with that trauma by reading and writing all the time, mm. which fortunately has become a fairly productive mm. thing in my life. But that is so deep in my character. I don't think I'll, I don't want to get rid of it. But I also think, you know, that can lead to fanaticism it can lead to me being so crazy that I thought it would be a good idea to take narcolepsy drugs even though I'm not narcoleptic as you mentioned because I wanted to be able to be awake more which had catastrophic effects on my ability to think in the medium to long term for reasons so obvious I hardly need to say them I can talk a bit more about the science around sleep because I've got a chapter about that I think it's really important but um I think I think for me where am I with work-life balance um got a very nice boyfriend who tries to get me to work less <laughs> um, uh, uh, he says you know I can't do his accent he's Israeli he says you know it is good you work but do you have to work constantly we were watching <laughs> there's this new I probably should say this but there's this new tv series about Chucky you know the Chucky doll oh my god uh, if you don't know it uh Chucky doll is a series of, a series of horror films about a um a children's doll who is possessed by the spirit of a serial killer and uh, so we watched this eight-part series about Chucky, and he's about halfway through. He said, "You know, Johan, you uh, you remind me a bit of Chucky." And I said, "What?" <laughs> and he said, "Well, Chucky is very hardworking. He's very determined. He achieves his goals." I'm like, "Well, yes, but his goals are to murder." Like, he said, "Oh yes, you are not like Chucky in this respect." <laughs> I was like, "So I was like, not sure whether to take that as a compliment, but." Um, but the the so yeah, I, I would say my uh, I work fanatically in a way that is clearly unhealthy, and I would be more productive if I actually relaxed. I, I would you be wouldn't more be. I bet you wouldn't be more. I mean, you couldn't really be much more productive, frankly. But also, I don't think you would be more productive if you relaxed more. Well, I think there's a thing about, um, and I have massively improved my sleep, and that has really improved my attention. Mm. And there's lots of evidence that that is true, and lots of chilling stuff I write about in the book about this. But, um. I think there's a thing as well about, it comes back to what we were saying about meaning. Um, so it is, it is much easier to pay attention to things that are meaningful Definitely, to you. Definitely, yeah. yeah. And this is actually, uh, the last quarter of Stolen Focus, as you know, is about our children's attention. Mm. And this is something that really worries me because we have, 
one of your uh, heroes, Michael Gove, stripped. As well, this has been happening for a long time. Strips, I don't like thinking Michael Gove. I'll finish that sentence before everyone literally vomits out all their internal organs. And the um, Michael Gove intensified the stripping of education and meaning for children. So much of it is about constant testing. Uh, the reason I mentioned that in relation to what we're talking about, and that's one of the reasons why our kids are struggling to focus, one of many reasons I go through, but my work is so meaningful to me. Mm. I'm in the incredibly fortunate position that my work is like, so if I think about the things I'm, I'm always working on a few books, partly because what's expensive about what I do is the, the travel. Mm. Um, it was deeply meaningful to me to figure out why is depression rising so much? right? What do we do about that? It's so important to me to know why are so many people not able to pay attention? Why are our kids not able to pay attention? These crimes in Las Vegas, it's really, who is carrying out these crimes? Who is doing this? That really matters to me. What are the stories of the people being murdered? Okay, that that's really important to me. I'm writing a biography of Noam Chomsky. Mm. How did Noam Chomsky become Noam Chomsky? I really want to understand that. So when your work is rich with meaning, attention you know, and I, I totally understand that's a privileged position and there's lots of things we can do to make, lots of social changes we can make to make work more meaningful to everyone. Um, when your work is rich with meaning, it's not like, oh, God, it, it's not, oh God, another day at the coalface, mm. you know. Um, it's it's a joy. Exactly. I would, if no one ever paid me, I would do yes, it, you know. Yes, exactly. Do you do that as well? Um, well, not with, not with all of it, but, you know, the writing the, writing both my books was like the most fun I ever had really and I can't believe when people say writing is hard I think no that that wasn't hard I mean for me writing book reviews after 30 years is still hard I still find every single book Mm -hmm. review really hard work um not that I don't enjoy I enjoy having done it and there is a sort of intellectual and creative certain creative satisfaction and intellectual satisfaction in the process but it's hard you know to read 600 pages and sort of synthesize that into um, something that is sort of catches it, critiques it, entertains the reader to some extent, obviously not a barrel of laughs, um, is, you know, I find all, all of that hard. I think all, all of that is so interesting. And you have created for yourself a work life that is both very demanding and very satisfying. And you did that after leaving The Independent, which is where we both, you know, got to know each other. And as, as as I said earlier, we were both columnists. We both had rather dramatic and painful departures, both quite different. And I won't go into the details now, but um, what advice would you give to someone facing a really significant um, setback, drawing on your own experience of, of your own recovery? It's a good question. I would say a few things, I suppose. One would be if you've done something wrong, as I had in that case, several things wrong, in fact. Uh, Obviously, you have to publicly acknowledge what you got wrong. But I think more importantly, you I mean, that is in itself very important and valuable, most importantly to the people who you've harmed. But I think as important is that you then think, reflect deeply, ideally in industrial strength therapy about why you made these mistakes and really excavate that think deeply about it think privately about it in a in a in a very uh candid way um so that would be the first thing i would recommend um the second thing i would recommend is that it should be a private process i think when you fuck up as i did you should not 
be you shouldn't talk about it in a way that's like see this from my point of view everyone right if you've harmed someone else you should encourage people to see it from the perspective of the people who've been harmed not from your own perspective which is why i i i don't talk mm. about that period of my life mm. because i i don't ever want to be in the pattern of like oh see it from my point yeah. of view right um the third thing i would recommend would be about connecting with meaning because um how would i put it you if you anchor your life in something that is meaningful to you i think a lot about this guy dmitry leontiev who i interviewed in moscow and um it's such a simple thing he told me his his grandfather was one of the three most important russian psychologists ever and he uh, is himself a very important psychologist and he said to me um you know, um, I know this will connect with you because you've talked about this really well, Christina, as well. He said, you know, when Russians, when we hear um, Americans and British philosophers say the point of life is happiness and the pursuit of happiness, we just laugh, right? This is a child's conception of what life mm. is about. He said, life is about the pursuit of meaning. Mm. And if you pursue meaning, you can tolerate an enormous amount of unhappiness. Mm. So I would say the first thing to do is decouple yourself from the external signifiers of success. If I think about very often when someone goes through a public controversy, if I know them even very slightly, I will reach out to them mm -hmm. and say, look, I went through a public controversy um, and I just try to give them whatever advice I can. And what I've really noticed is the ones who make it and the ones who don't, the key difference um, is the ones who remain fixated on external signifiers of success. Mm. I want to get back X. I want to get back, you know, the income I had, the celebrity I had, the whatever that might be. If that, of course, we all have an element of that. It's part of human nature. But the ones who fixate on that are generally the ones who don't make it. Mm. In fact, I can't think of an exception in, of that. Whereas the ones who are like, okay, this isn't, it's very painful but now I can find, construct a source of meaning and I can try and pursue that course of meaning. And sometimes that will lead to external success and sometimes it won't, but that's okay. Um, those tend to be the people who make it in the sense of psychologically surviving and being happy, thriving individuals, or perhaps happy as Dimitri would tell me not to use that word, uh, you know, uh, or rather, you know, he talks about the Greek, uh, if you look at ancient Greek, um, they had several words for what we call happiness. So there was hedonia, which is like hedonistic happiness. Yeah. Uh, uh, but then there was um, eudaimonia, which is a feeling of deep satisfaction, mm. which is very different to, I mean, can overlap with, but is different to hedonia. Mm. Um, and I would say it's the people who pursue eudaimonia, yes. not hedonia, yes. who, who make it. So the advice I would be is, what is meaningful to you? What matters? What do you want out of your life? Um, and, and, and then begin humbly to try to pursue that as best you can. That would be my advice to them. I think that's absolutely brilliant advice. I could literally talk for another five hours, but, uh, we, we have to leave it there, but it has been really fascinating and really genuinely inspirational and just great fun as well. Thank you so much for talking to me today.
Thanks so much for listening. Stolen Focus is published by Bloomsbury at £20. Do snap a copy up. You can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify or any of the main podcast directories and I'd be really grateful if you'd share it, rate it and or leave a review. Do follow at The Art of Work on Twitter or at theartofwork.co on Instagram, which is also the name of the website. And do join me next week.